Amen. So, it says in verse 19, So he departed from Horeb, we departed from Horeb, and went through all the great and terrible wilderness, which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites, as the Lord our God had commanded us. Then we came to Kadesh Barnea, and I said to you, You have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord your God is giving us. And I would pause right there and uh, remind us to pay attention to how many times uh, the Lord in recounting and in his foretelling of the circumstances, he's saying to the nation of Israel, I've already done these things. I've already given these things to you. I've already accomplished these works. The reason that they do not have them in their lives, the reason they don't have these fulfillments is because of their lack of trust. They, they did not believe God. They listened to the countenance of other people. So, so we'll talk in a little more detail about that, but specifically take note of how many times the Lord is saying, I've already done this, I've already given this, I've already promised this. So from the Lord's perspective, everything is in place. The people aren't at a place of spiritual strength that they're able to trust him in faith that way yet. So the Lord your God is giving us, look, the Lord your God, verse 21, has set the land before you. Go up and possess it as the Lord God of our fathers has spoken to you, do not fear or be discouraged. So they came to the place uh, that they had faith in what God had to say. He even said in Exodus chapter 23, uh, verse 28, I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites from before you. We ended and talking about that last week, how God is going to send uh, resources into the circumstances which they don't know anything about. You know, I mean, as far as they don't have control over the hornets, they don't know where the hornets are. It's not like they can use them or weaponize them, but God is saying, I'm going to weaponize them. I'm going to use them in your favor. Their fear... And distrust is based upon what they can see. They're only looking at the giants. They're only looking at the difficulty of the circumstances. They're not looking at everything that God has promised and everything that God is going to provide in the circumstance. So in verse 22, and every one of you came near to me and said, let us send men before us and let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up and of the cities in which we shall go. So again, God has already scouted and prepared and promised the land to them. And, and now they're saying, let us go through the process of discovering <clears throat> what you've already discovered and you've already promised to us. Rather than trusting his word, rather than trusting his promises, they're f functioning from that mindset of, let us investigate this for ourselves. Let us look into this. You know, you know how well that's always played out for you when, when you, you know, when you second guess God and uh, the things that he's set before you. So they uh, lose faith 
because of the testimony of the men that come back, right? Had they relied upon the promises of God, then they would have seen the fulfillment of these things. And instead, they listen to the testimony of men. Psalm 78, you might want to put your bookmark there in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and take a look at eight verses with me. Psalm 78 verse 1 says, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established the testimony of Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Uh, All through this passage, all through this scripture, we have the reassurance from the Lord and his ministers that these things are recorded for our benefit so that we don't have to make the same mistakes they have made. It's an unfortunate thing, but we do, don't we? We, we, we? we hear from the Lord, right? You know, don't run your head into that wall. And as we wind ourselves up, you know, to accomplish that, you know, it's not until after we've suffered the consequences that we say, you know, God is right. I can't believe it. The examples are set here for us to learn from them so that we don't have to go through the process. I've quoted Benjamin Franklin many times, right? He said, experience is a dear teacher. And we, in the modern sense, look at that like, oh, yeah, oh, you know, such a you know heartfelt, wonderful relationship with experience. No, what he was saying in the old English was it's very expensive, right? Experience is a dear teacher. The tuition's extremely high. Right? Some of us have you know, become professors in the school of hard knocks. So consider, we don't, ha- we don't have to take all those night courses in order to uh, learn the things that God has recorded for us here in the scripture. Verse 23, the plan pleased me. Now I want you to make sure you understand that that's Moses speaking, not the Lord, right? That as they make this plan of, oh, well, let's go spy out the land. Let's survey. Let's see what's involved there. It's pleasing to Moses. Once again, we see that as spiritual a man as Moses is, the most humble man that ever lived, according to, well, his own record, 
I don't, I don't know how humble you are if you record that about yourself, but you know, anyway, he, he is, according to the Holy Spirit, the most humble man that ever lived, and yet very human. When these men say, hey, let's go spy out the land, let's see which direction we're going to go, let's check out the fruitfulness, that plan seemed good to him. Uh, he has to pay the cost, perhaps more than some of the others, the plan pleased me well, so I took 12 of your men, one man from each tribe, and they departed and went up into the mountains and came to the valley of Eshkol. Something that stood out to me as I read this is there's two and a half tribes that aren't even going into the land. How is it that their opinion matters? You know, the things that like we don't get don't realize till way after the fact why, why are we even including them in the group of spies that are going to go into the land there's all kinds of things to, to, to look at and examine and wonder about so they spied it out verse 25 they also took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us and they brought back word to us saying it is a good land which the lord our god is giving us that would be wonderful if that's where the account ended. And in this, most of us that you know have had our Sunday school lessons and know how this story turns out, I'm wondering, like, why did you even bring back fruit? Why did you bring back all of these good things and say, the land is awesome, but the giants are going to kill us? If, if you're not going to wholeheartedly trust in what the Lord has promised and provided, then maybe you shouldn't even be involved. Verse 26, nevertheless, you would not. Notice it says would not. It doesn't say could not, right? You would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. I, you know, studying around all of these things, you know, we can sometimes get the impression based upon the way certain chronological orders present the the account to us, like, oh, well, you know, they had all of this trouble, but God's already given them massive victory. They've already seen the incredible work in the hand of God in their lives. So, yeah, there's giants in the land, but they, they are throwing away the knowledge of a great deal of experience they've already had with the Lord. I know none of us are guilty of that. You know, where the Lord's brought us through miserable circumstances and then we face the next one. You know, we, we would never forget the things of the past and like, you know, disparage the moment, right? Uh, hopefully we learn over time. So they would not go up. They rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you complained in your tents. See how that goes? Complained in your tents. You complained at home, right? Not not so much publicly at first. Not so much outright. Oh, but the complaint grows, doesn't it? And said, because the Lord hates us. Interesting. He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, right? <clears throat> I'm sure... Maybe you were a person, or almost certainly you've dealt with people that say things along the line of, you know, if 
God is a loving God, then how can he send people to hell? If, if there is a loving God, then how come there's so much suffering on the earth? In that, there's a condemnation of God. There's, there's an accusation pointed at God, that if there be a God, then he's evil. You're, you're saying, we're saying, whoever's saying that is saying, I know what justice is, and I see that it's not being done. I see that God has failed. Now, consider what the book of James tells us about the character of God, right? That every good and perfect gift comes down from our Father above, the Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow of turning. Meaning that he's not good one moment and then evil the next. Only good things come from God. That's it. Even when it looks like it's something terrible, God's good hand is the motivation behind it. So very often, uh, God is being discredited and disgraced in these statements. Uh, the reason God gets so angry with these people in the circumstances is because they're saying something about God's character that's absolutely untrue. It's a complete falsehood. God does not do these terrible things. Uh, where can we go? This whole thing, <clears throat> they've complained, and uh, you know, God, uh, he's just brought us out here to just, like God's not capable of destroying. God couldn't have just wiped you out with the Egyptians in the Red Sea, right? He couldn't have just let you starve to death. He could have not given you water and you would have perished of thirst. God couldn't have killed you anywhere along the way. You, not, now that we've brought you to the border and you're seeing how challenging the circumstances are ahead of you, you're saying, surely God has brought us out here because he hates us and he wants to kill us. Now, now consider, here we are all these thousands of years later in the way that God has protected and preserved and restored the nation of Israel. Surely, whether they know it or not, we know God loves them. He has cared for them. He has delivered them. He has protected them. He has provided for them. And they, right, they are our example. And maybe you've read in the book of Hebrews where it says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us press on toward the mark, the high calling of Christ. That passage I have heard preachers misuse so many times it's not funny. They, they put the cloud of witnesses as being there in the bleachers watching us compete in the race of life and they're there to witness whether we do it according to the rules and do it right, and whether we win, they'll be there to witness whether we do it or right. That's not the case at all. What Hebrews is saying is all of these people that have gone before you have all experienced the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And like a court case, they are recorded in history, testifying, witnessing to you and I of God's goodness. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us press on. These, these examples are recorded for us so that we trust God. So that when we are faced with the challenging circumstances, there's no complaint in our heart. 
There's no place in our lives to say things like, it always turns out this way for me. It's always God is against me. He's not. He's not. There are many things within that to examine, but understand this is not the character of God. How about those statistics, right? We, we touched on last week. Ten men discourage two million. That's tragic. That is tragic. Barna Research has uh, compiled uh, documentation on church splits. And in every single church split that they've documented, it's seven or less people who destroy the church. No matter how big the church is, right, there are seven or less people in the church that are whispering in their tents, that are discouraging the hearts and minds, that are destroying the work of the Lord. We want to be very careful about ever listening to even a single disparaging remark and what it has to say and what it will do to be 10 people discouraged 2 million and they have to wander for 38 years in order that that unbelieving generation would pass away so james chapter 3 parallel text verse 5 says even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among the members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell. That, that's a potent statement about how impactual speech is both directions right both directions you can extinguish the flames with your mouth also you can shut people's mouths with your mouth and the things you might say the encouragement you might lend to someone's circumstances back to deuteronomy chapter 1 looking at verse 28 they continue saying where can we go up our brethren have discouraged our hearts saying, the people are greater and taller than we, and the cities are greater and fortified up to the heavens. Moreover, we have seen the sons of Anakim there. So Anakim is uh, king amongst the giants, and he's 12 to 13 feet tall. Um, going to see later as we move through this that... Uh, they have record of his iron bed frame being 14 feet long and six feet wide. So archaeological digs, as we've talked about in that region, the kings of Og and Bashan, they've done a great deal of excavation there. You know, door frames that are 14 feet tall, door latches that are set at six foot and height, you know, all the doorknobs. I mean, it's one thing to, you know, keep the kids away from them, but six feet in the air, you know, say, there's just, you know, obvious circumstances that tell us there were giants that lived in reality in those settings. Verse 29, then I said to you, and before we move on, in case you're wondering about that, like just having a group discussion after a Sunday night service recently, 
<clears throat> about the fossil record. Uh, the scripture records fossils just in case, you know, some, some people have this mindset like the Bible is anti-science and, you know, anti-dinosaur and you know, all these different things. And dinosaurs are recorded in the scripture. Uh, read, you know, Job chapter 41. Leviathan and Behemoth both recorded there. You know, mountainous creatures, you know, thick-scaled skin, impenetrable by iron spears, all kinds of, you know, accounts of giant beasts upon the earth. The fossil record that we have, um, the sinus cavity is of particular note to the scientists who have looked at the, the dinosaurs and the fossil record because their nasal passages are the size of cattle today, right? So a beast that big would have to have a nostril, you know, the size of a grapefruit to haul in l enough air into its lungs in order for it to survive. The fact that the nostril is the size of a cow, you know, of today or a large ox today tells us that there was a different oxygen concentration in this planet's environment, that they were able to breathe even though their nostrils were that small. Imagine if you had a nostril, you know, that was like the size of one side of a coffee stirrer. You're trying to suck air through that. You, you, you know, pass out in no time. So, you know, that they, they believe anywhere from 50 to 70% greater oxygen concentration in the atmosphere, 50% 50, 50 greater oxygen atmosphere in the atmosphere. They've done experiments with that single tomato plants uh, kept in that type of environment uh, in a five-year life cycle of that plant uh, yielded two and a half ton of tomatoes, you know, one plant. So lots of things change. You know, we got asparagus ferns fossilized 15 feet tall. I've described many times dragonflies with 52-inch wingspans. You know, they just, right? I mean, dragonflies are insect eaters, yeah, I mean, if you've, got, if you've got a dragonfly with a 52-inch wingspan, how big are the mosquitoes at that point? You know what I'm saying? I just you got an entirely different world that, that was at play. So, so the residual of some of that. And, and some of the, okay, some of you that like are serious students of the scriptures say, well, there was a bottleneck at Noah. And, and so, you know, how did, if there were giants previous to the flood, then how is it that, you know, antediluvian, we, we, you're saying that there were giants after that. Well, I submit to you that perhaps Noah and his sons were giants, right? Which might have made the ark a lot bigger. If you're 12, 15 feet tall and you're measuring a cubit, right, from the center of your hand to the tip of your elbow, if, if you're that much larger, your cubit's that much larger also. So a number of things come into play that would make building a giant boat much easier also if you were a giant such as that. So anyway, we digress, try to get back on track here. Where did I leave off? Verse 28, the sons of Anakim, there 29, then I said to you, uh, do not be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you, he will fight for you according to all he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. So the war is for our mind, right? 
That's, that's what it's always about, is the control of the thought process. And uh, Paul gives us that great insight in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not earthly, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Uh, tell me you have not wrestled in your mind in whatever circumstance you're trying to trust the Lord and yet still struggling with your doubts and your fears. It's all about your thought process. If we will inject the word of God and let it displace everything else and you cling wholeheartedly to what you know the word of God says, right? Yeah, those aren't my thoughts. Yeah, tell me your thoughts have always been good and kind and pure and, you know, led you to wonderful places. You, you need to get rid of your thoughts. You need to let the Lord have his domination of your, your mind and your will. Verse 31, back Deuteronomy chapter 1, and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son. This is as affectionate a picture as you can uh, generate, okay? Um, maybe, you know, you had children and when you carried them, you never thought, you know, much sweetness about it. Uh, you know, maybe it was just, you know, a burdensome sort of thing. Just tell you that as a grandfather... I have a different mindset about my family and my children and my grandchildren today. And to hold and to carry my grandkids is just, it's never a problem. It's not an issue. I can break my back and it will not mean a thing to me because I have the joy of carrying them. And that's, that's what's being said here, is what should be in the heart of a father, that, that the, the loving, generous thoughtful approach and this is what the lord is saying they're they're complaining and squabbling and saying you want to kill us and god is saying i'm like your granddad man i just I mean, you don't understand i i want you to just lay in my arms and let me take you to the place of protection and comfort not i'm not going to let anything happen one of the worst injuries i ever got in my whole life was down on seawall when my oldest daughter, Christian, was like three, she wanted to go out to the water. And so I can't let her walk across all those rocks. And I pick her up and I lose my footing and I go down between two rocks on those barnacles. And as I lost my footing, I knew what we were in for. And I just turned my body into it so that she was on top of me. And I took the full brunt of all of that. I was picking barnacle out of my body for months after that literally tore my arm and my whole side right at like end of day at the beach you know what i'm saying that's how god is to the nth degree with us okay the cross belonged to you and i and he saw it coming and he turned himself into that and he took that full force for us so that we don't have to 
This is the heart and mind of God. Remember that if you come to circumstances and you've got any level of that attitude, like God's brought me this far just to wreck me or you know, <laughs> abandon me or whatever it is we might think, like the nation of Israel. Let your mind draw back to what he's saying right here. I want to carry you like a son, like a precious child who I will protect in the circumstances. And all the way that you went until you came to this place where they're supposed to enter the land. Yet, for all that, you did not believe the Lord your God who went in the way before you to search out the place for you to pitch your tents. Why did you think you needed to go and you know spy out the land and survey the land and find a way into the land when I led you from Egypt all the way to here? Did, did I did, did I not bring you on a good path? Did I not give you manna? Did I not give you water? What what has what has caused you to think along the lines where it's an accusation in your heart against me is what the Lord is saying? You know, I, I I didn't need anybody to spy out the land for me. He did not believe the Lord your God, who went in the way before you to search out a place for you to pitch your tents to show you the way you should go. In the fire by night, in the cloud by day. The scripture, the New Testament tells us that the uh, fire was over the whole encampment. And the cloud was over the whole encampment. This pillar that, that stayed with them. Two million people plus, depending on how you do your calculations. Some estimate as many as eight million, right? But at least two million people. Right? There's only, what, a million point three people in the entire state of Maine. So the state of Maine's population times two, and God has a cloud covering over them that cools them in the day, right? Middle Eastern hot desert sun. Hey, have you not been on the beach and been on the towel or whatever, and you step off on the sand and it scorches your feet? God is cooling the sand, cooling the air for them. Got that cloud over them all the time. Pillar of fire at night says kept them warm and illuminated. Right? Got nice night light on. So if you need to get up and use the restroom in the middle of the night, you can see your way around. Don't have to worry about bandits sneaking in and being amongst the tents. You know, got a traveling night light system with you that keeps you warm and cover. This is the thoughtfulness of God. This, this is how he functions with them. And he's saying to them, where is your doubt coming from? How, how in the world is it that I've done all of this and there's still doubt in your heart? Hebrews 10, verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. We have to stir up in one another the remembrance of God's goodness. I'm, you know, I know all the conspiracy theories. I don't subscribe much to any of them, right? But I know this, my enemy does not want the church gathering together. And this is part of that program right now, is to keep us at home. 
and to keep us away from one another. I need to see your face to encourage me to continue to teach the good work that the Lord has given me to do. Uh, You need to see my face so that I can encourage you to do the good works you're supposed to be doing. Stirring one another up. Why? Because if we're not stirring one another up towards good deeds, what happens by nature? This junk right here. We deteriorate. We fall apart. We digress into terrible places. Verse 34, the Lord heard the sound of your words and was angry and took an oath saying, surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see that good land of which I swore to give to their fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, right? And I just want to point this out again, right? He's not even from the nation of Israel. He's a Kenite who has attached himself to them religiously and spiritually and physically. And God says, now there's a guy that I'll pay attention to. Him, his children, I'll pay attention to him. He shall see it, and to him and his children, I am giving the land on which he walked, because he wholly followed the Lord. The Lord was also angry with me for your sakes, Now, some preach that, right? This is Moses speaking. God was angry with me for your sakes, saying, even you shall not go in there. And and they they teach this as though Moses was, you know, blame shifting. Like, I could have gone in if it wasn't for you guys. And that's not his attitude at all. What did Moses do as a failure, right? He was supposed to speak to the rock the second time, right? The first time that they needed water, the Lord told him, take your staff, strike the rock, water pours out, a river of water pours out for the entire nation of Israel and all of their livestock. And then the second time, they're complaining against Moses about God's brought us out here to kill us with thirst and starvation. And, you know, he gets angry with them and God says, speak to the rock. This time he strikes the rock. We learn from the New Testament, the rock was a symbol of Jesus Christ. Well, in fact, the way it's worded in the New Testament is the rock was Jesus Christ, right? And Jesus Christ is only struck one time at the cross for us to strike him a second time. And Hebrews warns us about doing that because there's no need for a second sacrifice. Jesus died once and for all. When the scripture right here tells us, that Moses was not allowed to go in for their sake. It was so they would see Moses screwed up very badly in misrepresenting God and therefore was not allowed, and let's be clear, because crossing that Jordan River into the promised land is not a symbol of death and the entrance into heaven and eternity in the presence of God. Crossing the Jordan River into the promised land symbolizes our victorious Christian life here and now. Conquering the things in your world and in your environment that are giant problems that need to be defeated by God. Living a victorious life. There are not going to be any battles for us once we enter the presence of the Lord. 
That's our final resting place is in his presence. Moses is told you don't get to enter into the victorious life. If we continue in our sinful nature and we don't mature and grow beyond that, then you're going to stay floundering in the same place spiritually you've always been. And that's what's being said to Moses. You don't get to cross over into the place of victorious living because you stayed in that place. What, what was it originally with Moses, right? Flare of anger, kill an Egyptian, right? Flare of anger, strike the rock. He's demonstrating to the people, as much as my relationship with God has changed me, there's a huge portion of myself which it has not changed. So therefore, he doesn't get to cross over. So this statement of, you know, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes, we, we would almost better read that the Lord was angry with me for your benefit so that you would see the need to trust God wholeheartedly and to change, to let God change your, your person and your personage. So saying, even you shall not go in there. Um, drop right down to 38. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Encourage him. Same as what I read from Hebrews chapter 10. Encouraging one another. We really need to encourage one another in our gifts, our calling, and our work for the Lord. Uh, I hear a lot of Christians saying things that essentially what they're saying is I'd really like to uh, you know, find an opportunity where I could work in the ministry, like, like, like get a job and, and be a minister in, in some various form or another. And the, and the thing that I always try to encourage people is, you know, there, there's very few positions, and, and just so we're clear on this, right, like I, I have a full-time job outside of being the pastor of this church, right? I, I also work. So the uh, point is, God has given you a ministry. You're in it. Well, where, where are you, right? I mean, th those people are probably not going to come to church regularly. But you come to church, and you get fed, and you grow, and you learn, and the message is embedded in your heart and mind. Now take it back there. Be a missionary in those environments. Uh, Frank Drowns was the man who uh, discipled Jim Elliott. You may remember Jim, the whole story of his taking uh, the message to the natives who ultimately killed him and his partners uh, there. What was the movie called? End of the Spear was, was, the, was the movie. Frank Drowns trained Jim, taught Jim. I heard Frank uh, speak on a few different occasions a handful of years ago now, and uh, he's still a missionary. Uh, 90 something and was last time I saw him and he was headed to uh, a, a tribe of Inuits in, in the Arctic Circle to go uh, minister to them up there. He said, being a missionary, there are two things you have to overcome. Every, every time you go anywhere to be a missionary, there are always two things you have to overcome. Uh, one is the language and the other is the culture because you might know their language perfectly well but they won't accept you because you're incredibly offensive because you don't know their culture. 
So you have to learn their language and you have to learn their culture. And Frank turns that right around because we're all like ready to go get on an airplane and go minister to the Inuits with him. And, and he says, no, 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 wherever you are, you already know the language and the culture. God has made you a missionary there. Be a missionary. And then he puts the challenge even deeper with the fact that probably every one of us has been called and we're all failing at our mission. People all around us all day long that we need to open our mouth and we need to speak to them. We need to be missionaries amongst them. So I have no idea how I got to that point with this message. So I'll just turn back here. And uh, we are... Uh, uh, Joshua, the son of Nun, encourage him. So I was encouraging you. There you go. Um Verse 39, moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims, right? That was their claim. We can't go in there. There's giants in there. We'll get killed. They'll kill our children. So you say they're going to be victims who today have no knowledge of good or evil. They shall go in there. To them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Then you answered and said to me, we have sinned against the Lord. Uh, we will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. When everyone of you had girded on his weapon of war, you were ready to go up into the mountains. And you know how that's going to turn out, right? They're going to get trounced. They're going to fail in the situation. So take the spiritual picture, right? Uh, the call of the Lord, to obey him, to work, to minister, to go and do what the Lord would have us to do. And we fail. We don't. We, you know, turn aside. We we have all kinds of excuses and we don't. And then, you know, maybe even in a sermon like this, we hear, we say, yeah, therefore I'm going to. And we charge out the door to go do. And then we fail. And it can be further discouragement. So the picture here is interesting. Because the Lord just said to them, you guys are all going to die and your children are going to do it. And so what do we have to do? Relegate ourselves to failure? You know, I should have done it. I didn't do it. And then, you know, I charged ahead and tried to do it and got defeated. So therefore, I, you know, I'm just I'm a failure upon a failure. Uh, that's not it at all. Right. What is it that has to die here? It's the flesh. Right. These these people are all functioning in the flesh. You know, the King James uh, very poetically puts it that God led them through the wilderness for 38 years, scattering their carcasses through the wilderness until he could come back and bring their children into the promised land. There's a carcass, the flesh, in you, of you, that needs to die. Jesus saying to us, take up your cross daily and follow me, right? We need to put to death the flesh so that the child of God in us can live. So the child within us will have the victory, will see these promises fulfilled, will see this ministry done, but you're going to die first. You can't just hear the message in the flesh and go, yeah, I'm in, sign me up and charge out the door into those circumstances. 
the flesh has to die first. And only God knows how that long that's going to take, right? For some of us, it's instantaneous. We say, oh, that stabbed me through the heart. That was deeply convicting. I got to own that. And we just let ourselves die. Others of us wrestle and fight. And it takes a very long time for the flesh to be put to death until we're no longer seeking our own desires, until the child of God is just ready to be obedient and follow the will of the Lord. So to wrap this up, verse 42, it says, uh, yep, and verse 42, and, and the Lord said to me, tell them, do not go up nor fight, for I am not among you, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, yet you would not listen, but rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the mountain. And the Amorites who dwelt in the mountain came out against you and chased you as bees do and drove you back from Seir to Hormah. Then you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord would not listen to your voice nor give ear to you. Remember how I mentioned that the Lord had promised them, if you'll obey me and go up into the land, I'll send the hornets with you, right? I mean, your forward scouts will be stinging insects. It's just, I painted that picture last week. What a, what a beautiful thing when you're about to attack your enemy and they suddenly start jumping up from their hiding place and ripping off their armor. I mean, that, that makes the battle really easy. When the hornets have gotten underneath their armor. And now, unfortunately, the tables have turned because the Lord is not with them. Why is the Lord not with them? Because they're not with the Lord. Right? God is ever faithful. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. And the problem is we walk away. And they have. They have not trusted God. They've turned aside. They've distrusted. They've made accusations against him. And when they realize they're wrong, oh, well, now we're in the battle. Now we'll go do what you want us to do. And then their enemies chase them down like bees. I, I wish I could, you know, relay all of this to you from an uninformed, you know, position, right? That I, that I could say these things were just things I'd read about and heard about. But like probably many of us, I've experientially been through them. Yes. We need to be people that are surrendered to the Lord. So, verse 48, you remained in Kadesh many days according to the days that you spent there. Um, I'll read the opening to uh, chapter 2. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness, the way of the Red Sea, as the Lord spoke to me. We skirted Mount Seir for many days. The Lord spoke to me, saying, you have skirted the mountain long enough. Turn northward and command the people, saying, You are about to pass through the territory of your brethren, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir. They will be afraid of you. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully. Thus begins this long, arduous journey. Right. So this has already happened. Moses is recounting it for them so that they'll get the lesson which is why we're recounting it this morning. Um, you know, th there's, in Calvary Chapel, there's a lot of, you know, uproar about certain Calvaries, uh, you know, have made statements about they don't, they don't think it's necessary to teach the Old Testament. You know, others 
don't take that strong of an approach. They, they'll just say things like, I don't, don't think it's necessary to teach the Old Testament on Sunday mornings. Okay. I, I find it very necessary for us to, to digest these things, right? You know, the, there's a whole bunch of this that is taught to us in the New Testament sense of things, but we don't have the foundational understanding from the Old Testament. This, this was the method that was taught to us, that ministered to us, that caused us to become ministers as we are today, to teach the whole Bible, the whole counsel of God's word, as Paul said. I'm not guilty of any man's blood because I have not failed to declare to you the whole counsel of God's word. We are here studying our way through the whole counsel of God's word for this very purpose. I find, I find these Old Testament passages to be more enlightening very often than the New Testament passage. You know, we're, we're, we're getting the finality and the top layer in, in the New Testament. You don't have the depth and the foundation and the understanding that comes from the Old Testament. So I hope you're not, you know, bogged down with the thought of, and I'll say it again, you know, Deuteronomy, you know, oh, Deuteronomy, second account of the law. It is, it is the book that Jesus quoted from more than any other book of the Bible, the book of Deuteronomy. You know, when tempted by Satan after 40 days of praying and fasting, he combated Satan's temptations with Deuteronomy alone. No other book. He didn't quote from any other book. Deuteronomy alone. It's a remarkable thing that we have at our disposal. And as we look at the nation of Israel's failures, very easy to overlay on your own life. So let, let us learn from the scripture, you know, ra rather than having to go through the, exper the experiential process. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father, we are grateful for your word, grateful for your love, grateful for your work in our lives, and we pray that you would continue. Speak to us. As your children, help us to take up our cross daily, to die to ourselves, Lord, that there will be less of us and more of you with each passing day. Accomplish what you want to in us and accomplish what you want to through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.